Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. John G. Stackhouse Jr. is Professor of Religious Studies at Crandall University in Moncton, a favorite and well-read Faith Today columnist, and a scholar and author of many books, including the soon-to-be-released Oxford University Press book, Evangelicalism, A Very Short Introduction. I'm Karen Stiller, and my colleague Bill Fladeras, who is John's Faith Today editor, joined me in a conversation with John that ranged from nitty-gritty bits of history to considering why people leave evangelicalism and why evangelicals make such good jokes, which I confess I hadn't actually heard before, so I was glad for that. We hope you enjoy this conversation. John, your book starts off with a portrait of a stereotypical evangelical, which I'm going to read. You write, imagine an evangelical. He is white, middle-aged, and middle-class. He pastors a large Baptist church in the American Midwest or Sun Belt. He also holds large meetings in various other cities, which combine a rally of the faithful with an invitation to newcomers to convert. He probably has his own radio or television show, or at least a popular podcast. He preaches frequently on current social controversies, and he aligns himself conspicuously with the political right. This, we should say more carefully, you write, is a stereotypical evangelical, at least in the minds of many. And when I read that, John... And I am, you know, kind of an insider. I thought, ugh, that is um, unappealing to me. And I wondered if you could sort of start there with that stereotype and tell us who is the truly typical evangelical. Well, uh, I always prefer to start my books with something repellent, which is why I have the fabulous sales history that I do. <laughs> if you can, put up, you know, put off the reader in the very first paragraph. Isn't that what we tell yes. our younger writers? Yeah. That's an Umberto Eco's approach. That's right. That's right. Kurt Vonnegut says, grab the reader by the throat, but he, he wants you to hang on to them, not to drive them away. So uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh yeah, I mean, uh, the, the main audience for this, not the only audience, but the main audience for this will be people who have some idea, image of evangelicals in their heads. And my guess is the stereotype comes pretty close to what a lot of us think, even those of us who are insiders. When we think evangelicals, we think of popular evangelicals or leading evangelicals. Uh, this is what uh, tends to come to mind, partly because, of course, of the tremendous American media machine that pumps out its images and itself uh, all around the world. And part of what I've tried to do in this book is to show that things are other than that, that in fact, the further away you move from the United States, the less that stereotype is true. Uh, it's less true in Canada. It's really less true in Latin America. And once you start cross, crossing an ocean, uh, it becomes uh, a ghost that just quickly disappears. I really, um, I know that that's true. And yet that sort of American stereotype that we've just read off and that you start your book with has a very large looming shadow. That is also undergoing a pretty big reckoning right now. I think there's, you know, lots of, I think, tons of pushback against that movement. Um, sometimes I wonder why we even need the word. Like, why do we have to label? Why do we need these labels of camps? And help me understand that, John. Well, the evangelical label uh, both predates evangelicalism and 
continues to, I think, be useful to us in the 21st century. I mean, the word itself, evangelical, comes from the evangel, which is the good news. And so in that sense, it just means the gospel or of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, uh, evangelicals are just good news people. And that would mean all Christians. And sometimes that's what it means. It just means if somebody's truly of the gospel, if somebody is living out gospel precepts, then we can call them an evangelical. Someone like Francis of Assisi was called evangelical for that reason in the Middle Ages. In the 16th century, when the Protestant reformers were calling their church, the Roman Catholic Church, back to the gospel, they used the adjectival form evangelical quite a lot. Say, this is the evangelical truth. This is the evangelical way of proceeding. And because of that usage, evangelical just means Protestant in many parts of the world. It does in German, it does in Spanish, and so evangelical sometimes just means Protestant. What we now mean generally, though, in English-speaking countries is a kind of Protestantism that emerges into focus in the 18th century in transatlantic revivals. We think of John and Charles Wesley and the Methodists in England. We think of Jonathan Edwards and the first Great Awakening in the American colonies. Here in Canada, we can think of Henry uh, Aline and other preachers out here in the Maritimes in the Great Awakening of the later 18th century and so on. And what begins to form and, as I say, come into focus in the 18th century is a way of being a Protestant Christian. So that by now, in the 21st century, uh, I would suggest, and I suggest in this book, that to be an evangelical Protestant is to occupy what I would call the vital middle of the Protestant spectrum. To our left, we would call we would call them liberal uh, Protestants, people whose name means liberty or free. Liberal Christians are free to respect and obey the Bible, but also to take issue with the Bible, where they feel it might be racist or sexist or old-fashioned in some way. Liberal Christians are free to enjoy the tradition of the church, but they're also free to say, no, we find that binding, uh, confused, unhelpful, small-minded, so they can set it aside. Conservative Protestants, on the other hand, feel that the tradition they have received from their parents and pastors is the sober truth. And so conservative Protestants simply try to be faithful to the tradition handed down to them. So think of prayer book Anglicans, for instance, that, that follow the prayer book word for word every single Sunday. Think of conservative Mennonites or conservative Lutherans that simply try to preserve the faith once delivered to the saints. Evangelicals, I'm suggesting, occupy this vital middle we feel obliged to Scripture as the very Word of God written. We are respectful but not bound to tradition. We do happily innovate when it comes to finding new and effective ways of doing church and of conducting mission. But we also see ourselves as part of the one holy apostolic universal church of Jesus Christ. And so evangelicalism, it seems to me, I'm going to suggest, occupies this middle of this threefold spectrum. Not everybody agrees with me about that, but I think it's a way of using the word that makes sense historically and in a in a useful way today. I think uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is you talk about the Bebbington quadrilateral, the four 
aspects of evangelicalism that British scholar identified that have been used by many people. And then you add to criteria populism, I think, and pragmatism to that. And I'm quite convinced by your argument, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about populism and pragmatism and why you see those as key aspects of what it means to be an evangelical. Well, David Bebbington's kind of a big brother in the uh, the guild of evangelical historiography, and I respect and like David very much. I think he did us a great service with his fourfold definition. I also think, though, that some of the critique that it's received over the last couple of decades is deserved. So I don't just add two to his four, but I refine a couple of them. Uh, in particular, his crucicentrism, the idea that evangelicals are focused on the cross, I think it's true that we are, but I also think that David's definition leaves out the very strong emphasis of evangelicals on the Holy Spirit. And evangelicals don't need the Pentecostals in the 20th century to remind us of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the 18th century evangelicals, if you look at the writings of the Wesleys and George Whitfield and Edwards and Lesser Lights, it's full of the Holy Ghost, full of the Holy Spirit. The whole emphasis on conversion, the whole emphasis on a sanctified life, these are gifts and works of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I, I do think that David oversimplified importantly there, which is why I've changed that criterion from the very, very narrow crucicentrism to perhaps the overly broad Trinitarian. But I couldn't think of another way of getting across that evangelicals right from the 18th century forward are, are deeply and I would say operationally Trinitarian. The Holy Spirit is very lively for the 18th century evangelicals and later on. I think otherwise, the emphasis on, on the Bible, the emphasis on Christian mission, and the emphasis on conversion, both to be converted and then to continue to be converted, to be sanctified, I think if we hold those together, we're mostly in agreement with what uh, David suggested. But it seems to me that the that what he's trying to get at, and I think properly so, is is how do you know an evangelical when you see one? How do you know an evangelical church or organization when you, when you see it? Are there other things that distinguish evangelicalism from older forms of Christianity in the past and other forms today? I think populism is important to see. This is about evangelicals' political culture. How do we find leaders? How do we find authority in our churches? And there's a very strong sense in evangelicalism of the priesthood of all believers. Now, what Martin Luther meant by that was really quite narrow. He meant any Christian can hear the confession of another Christian and pronounce the word of gospel absolution to him or her. What evangelicals now typically mean is much broader, the sense of the, of the soul competence of each individual. Each individual is related to Jesus. Each individual has the Holy Spirit. Each individual listens to God. And so in evangelicalism, if lots of such individuals endorse a book or a podcast or a preacher, then there must be something good going on there, in a sense, ipso facto. If a lot of people who are filled with the Spirit endorse something, then probably something good is happening. Now, evangelicals can be foolish about that, like every other group of people. We can sometimes confuse celebrity for genuine spiritual popularity. That's a besetting sin for us as evangelicals. But there's actually a theological principle behind that, which I try to uncover in the book. It's not just that evangelicals are, are chasing after celebrity because of our status anxiety. It's because we literally think that where the Spirit of God is, the people of God will recognize that. 
And so we're deeply populist in that respect. We're also very pragmatic. We think that the Spirit of God does whatever he has to do to get done what he wants done in the world. He'll use anybody he has to use, and he'll use any means that he has to use. So evangelicals are happy to have an old-fashioned church, and we're happy to have a church that looks like a modern auditorium. We're happy to preach uh, outside on the street, we're happy to preach in a traditional pulpit, and we're happy to preach through mass media of any sort. You give us a medium, we'll use it. And evangelicals have often been pioneers in new media in order to get the gospel out as quickly and effectively as we can, and then to enfold people into communities of sanctification to help us grow up. So evangelicals are the kinds of people who like to preach the old-time gospel with state-of-the-art equipment. John, when you said that about uh, we believe that the Holy Spirit can sort of use anything or anybody, uh, and that we tend to, you know, let that happen, sort of try to get out of the way, I just can't help... I couldn't help but think of, you know, all these scandals in the last couple of years, you know, you know, Ravi Zacharias, the recent ones now in Canada, you know, Jean Vanier, which still just breaks my heart. Um, I help us understand how we get that so wrong and how we still, you know, people are still making excuses. And sometimes they use that line about, you know, well, God will, God can use anybody and anybody can, you know, be redeemed. And of course, I believe that, but there's a lot of broken hearts out there from this movement. Evangelicals are supposed to be Bible people, but we are often shown up to be not very biblical. The Bible portrays very few people who don't have pretty serious flaws, including leaders in the Bible. Jesus emerges pretty good from the pages of Scripture, uh, as he should. And there aren't very many other characters who do. Daniel, probably Joseph, depending how you read his story. But anybody who gets a fair bit of ink in the Bible ends up showing he's got feet of clay and maybe more than that. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Peter, Paul. Uh, and I've, I've named the big shots there. Um, so if we read our Bibles more carefully... We would see that, yes, God uses everybody, uh, he can, and uses all sorts of people, and, and, and all of them are sinners. But what we also should be learning from Scripture is how leadership can go wrong, how institutions can go wrong. And we're not very good at that. We tend to see people, our leaders, as, well, if the Spirit of God is upon David, then David can just do anything he likes, well, let's, let's take a look and, and read the Bible and see what happens when David finally becomes king. Mostly bad things actually happen when David is given that much power. Let's see what happens when Peter is, is named the rock of the early church and see if he's always right. Oh, by golly, he's often not uh, right and importantly wrong about things. So we really do need to simply read our Bibles better and say, yes, God uses leaders who are flawed, so let's make sure we have institutional structures that expect leaders to be flawed, and we'll try to keep them from falling to pieces and falling off their pedestals, and we won't make the pedestals all that high so that other people have access to these guys and can get to them before they blow themselves up. So I, I think that, frankly, we sometimes are as wise as doves and as harmless as serpents. We, we really do need to understand better what our own scripture tells us about realism in human nature, including in our own leadership. 
I really appreciate that answer, John. It is helpful because when I, with the recent Bruxy Cavey episode, when I read some of the comments, um, you know, in follow up to his confession that were like, oh, King David, like everyone talks about King David as if, you know, as if that makes it like predictable and understandable and or somehow. And I, I really struggle with that, but you've helped me yeah, our, the doctrine of original sin, we should not expect people to be able to deal with great piles of power and not have some problems. So I, I like what you're saying about structures, for sure. I wanted to ask you, you talk about how conservative and evangelicals are not necessarily the same thing. So we're making a bit of a leap in topic here. But I found that really interesting, because I immediately think of and assume and use that label of conservative toward evangelicals. But so that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's important that evangelicals see ourselves as not conservative or liberal, but we're trying to truly be gospel people. Now, of course, self-righteousness lurks in the bushes here, um, you know, self-aggrandizing. Yes, you see, we're gospel people, and all those other Christians or something else. And, and that's how the word's been used sometimes, and that's too bad. But I would see this as aspirational in this sense. We, we hope to be gospel people. F.F. F. Bruce, the great evangelical New Testament scholar of a previous generation, said, I don't want to be conservative or liberal. I want to be right. You know, I want to get the Bible right. I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. And I don't really care what label it has. I just want to do what the Lord says. And that's what I think has guided evangelicals at our best. At our best, we have simply not cared very much about where we happen to land on somebody else's spectrum of left and right. So evangelicals have been right across the political spectrum, for instance. In England, there have been evangelicals who are stout Tories who support the Queen and uh, believe in a strong House of Lords, and there are evangelicals who have been very strongly uh, to the left of that, even supporting socialism in uh, England uh, on the left-wing party. Not communism, because that's anti-religion, but, but, but Christian socialism actually has quite a history in Europe and in Britain in particular, and evangelicals have been behind that. That's true in our own country, of course. Tommy Douglas is a Baptist pastor helping to lead the CCF and the NDP, and whether or not you or I have ever voted for the NDP, many of their policies we all take for granted today. Unemployment insurance and universal health care and a number of other ideas that were originally hatched by our left-wing party. So it seems to me that historically and contemporarily, evangelicals should not simply be so worried about what's to our left that we feel the right thing to do is to drive as quickly as possible into the ditch on the other side of the road. No, the point <laughs> is to keep the car on the road, right? And to pull to the right is just as big a mistake as to pull to the left. Just because the culture currently is pulling to the left in Canada doesn't mean that we should simply steer hard to the right. Just like our American friends need to be careful that just because their culture is pulling them to the right, they shouldn't simply look to everything on the left as being a good idea. And that's just true in these two countries, let alone in places like Brazil, where the evangelicals in many respects are allied with a pretty odious president. Uh, frankly, probably a fairly criminal president. And this is true in other countries uh, in, in, the, in Africa, where many evangelical pastors are very happy to prop up regimes that are pretty violent toward their political adversaries. No, we have to keep our wits about us and keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and not on any particular political program 
Uh, we better not confuse that with the kingdom of God. No, there's always a critique and there's always something to affirm in some kind of political program. And evangelicals, I think, are as free as anybody, including our liberal friends, to say yes or no to any particular political or cultural spectrum on which we find ourselves. I'm just going to follow up in terms of you're talking about the states. In the book, what I found really interesting in that regard is your chapter on the 20th century. The way you frame it is almost like the U.S. evangelicalism went on a tangent in the 20th century that was kind of irrelevant to the rest of evangelicalism. And that's awkward because a lot of people see, especially white U.S. evangelicalism, as being the mainstream. And your book seems to kind of suggest that's sort of come around again. You talk about fears of communism and liberal theology, evolution, and higher criticism sort of sending U.S. white evangelicalism into kind of a defensive stance in the 20th century. And then that sort of changing more recently, people recognizing that that for what it is. And you, you talk about in the history of evangelicalism, even in the United States, that it wasn't so defensive. It was much more well-rounded, including social engagement and evangelism. And that's continued. That's a tradition that's continued in many other parts of the world, just not in the United States. Have I understood that right, I guess? Uh, maybe is what I'm asking. And then I, I guess that plays out in terms of how people might characterize evangelicalism politically. Well, in an article I'm going to publish this summer in the Christian Scholars Review, I'm going to take a look at how um, evangelicalism in the United States wasn't even as fundamentalistic as we think. Uh, the, the, the documents themselves called the Fundamentals, which were published between 1910 and 1915, are actually not fundamentalistic. They're actually broadly evangelical, and they continue to speak for significant numbers of evangelicals in the United States in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. We tend to have focused, and the history is focused, on spectacular figures like Billy Graham and the institutions that he helped to found or to flourish. Uh, institutions like Fuller Theological Seminary, Christianity Today magazine, um, Worldwide Pictures, the Billy Graham Film Company, uh, Wheaton College, Billy Graham's alma mater, and so on. But it's it's interesting in some in some work that's that's recently been published by other scholars. It, it's, it seems that when Billy Graham and his friends are trying to rescue their fundamentalist movement from its excesses and bring it back onto a kind of evangelical mainstream, they're mostly Presbyterians and Baptists who are doing this because it's mostly Presbyterians and Baptists who became fundamentalistic. What doesn't happen in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s is, for instance, that Methodism becomes fundamentalist. But that's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, is the Methodist community. The second largest are the Southern Baptists, and they aren't fundamentalist until well into the 70s and early 80s, when they have a kind of conservative purge. If you think of the holiness groups, they're not very involved. The Anabaptist, Mennonite groups, they're not very involved. The Pentecostals aren't very involved. Well, I've just named most of the evangelicals in the United States, and they simply don't undergo a kind of fundamentalism, even though that mainstream evangelical culture, so-called, affects them to some extent. I argued that point already about Canada uh, 30 years ago in my book on evangelicalism in Canada. What I didn't realize is that it's largely true of the states as well. Well, a fortiori, as we uh, scholars say, all the more this is true in countries elsewhere. A fundamentalism of a sort and a kind of anti-culture worry about 
the larger society. Yeah, we can see that in Britain. We can see it in Australia, New Zealand, see it in South Africa. And beyond the Anglosphere, we see it elsewhere. But generally speaking, evangelicals kind of continue the way they always have, preaching the gospel, caring for the poor, trying to look after the sick, starting new organizations, especially after the 1960s, to minister to various kinds of needs from world vision to compassion to, of course, the good old Salvation Army, an evangelical denomination from the the 19th century. So this image we have of this strident, fundamentalist, political, right-wing fire breather is really a kind of historical accident of being so close to the U.S. and so close to particularly media-savvy right-wingers who have come to speak for evangelicals when, in fact, they largely don't represent anything other than a fairly strong but very loud minority of global evangelicalism. So, John, given that and given the you know numbers of the evangelical church in the majority world, do you see that global South influence coming to help our reputation in North America, will we experience a healthy impact from that reality? I think we're beginning to feel it in a couple of ways. I think at the major evangelical conference held at Lausanne in Switzerland in the 1970s, as you know, it was people from Latin America who largely held the white Brits and Americans' feet to the fire and said, evangelism is crucial to our mission, but that's always been part of caring for the poor and the needy and living out the creation mandate to make the world better. We we've never should have left that aside. And evangelicalism is always about the whole gospel, not just the gospel of getting people converted and on their way to heaven. So people like René Padilla and Samuel Escobar um, are, are calling the West to that. And fortunately, people like John Stott and others recognize that authenticity and put it in the so-called Lausanne Covenant, probably the most important evangelical document of the last generation. So in that sense, we feel that pushback. I mentioned the Methodists a little while ago. And in the United Methodist Church, which actually includes Christians outside Methodism, uh, including Africans, actually, and including the global Anglican communion, we are seeing evangelicals in uh, Africa push back against liberal tendencies in the Anglican and Methodist churches here in North America, and right where our liberal friends want to bless the post-colonial Africans to their dismay, they're finding that these post-colonial Africans don't want to join them in a progressive uh, cause for sex and gender minorities quite the way they do. Now, that the shadow side of that is that some fairly strident Americans have stirred up quite a bit of trouble in Uganda and a couple of other places to encourage a pretty repressive regime against uh, same-sex brothers and sisters, and, and evangelicals, I think, need to stand against that. But in terms of a traditional biblical ethic, I think we're seeing uh, evangelicals uh, continue to help North Americans understand better how we can be faithful to the gospel. John, there's also a big movement that, I mean, my Instagram is filled with (laughs) ex-evangelicals posting really clever things and helpful critique and calling out what is unhealthy, perhaps, in American evangelicalism. I wonder, and you talk about that a little bit in 
in the book, that term ex-evangelical. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and tell us maybe what you think is helpful about that movement and what we can gain from it and maybe not so great? Well, the ex-evangelicals are people who, for one of a number of reasons, have found that they just don't want to be evangelicals anymore. And thus it's ever been, right? Every movement attracts people and it loses people. There's no news there. People got excited about Whitfield's preaching and then they weren't excited anymore. They joined the Methodist small groups in the 18th century and then they didn't like them anymore. So there's nothing really very interesting about that except we live in a time where all sorts of things get amplified because of the megaphones available to all of us through social media. Yes, people are turned off because of the plastic nature of evangelical popular culture. But, I mean, people my age were turned off by that in our 20s and teens as well, when we had the the Bible bookstores full of Jesus junk. I mean, some people don't appreciate how much better things are today that some of those bookstores aren't around to offend us with all the all, all the crap that they had with, with cross. You know, crosses and fish stuck on every darn thing. I mean, that, that was really pretty uh, idolatrous, horrible stuff that we uh, we lived through there for a while. Uh, so there's always uh, a way to take offense because there are always um, people doing stupid things and there are always people doing wrong things. Um, and those get amplified, as I say, by social media that loves whatever is the newest uh, bad thing uh, to, to get upset about. I think the, the, the point is we, we shouldn't judge uh, a movement by its uh, bad proponents, but by its best ones. If you're going to leave evangelicalism, leave it because you really don't like what John Wesley stands for, and you don't like what the Salvation Army does, and you don't like what World Vision is up to, you, you don't like what Tim Keller is saying, you don't like what Tom Wright does. Like you should be, you should be leaving it because you genuinely don't like evangelicalism at its sincere heart. Don't leave it because some idiot is is calling himself an evangelical and doing dumb things. That would be like leaving Islam because you object to 9-11. It would be like leaving Judaism because you don't like the Jewish comic that you happen to see at your comedy club on Friday night. I mean, you're, you're leaving for the wrong reasons. And this is partly what what, uh, what breaks my heart, actually, is that a lot of people are, are saying well, I'm never going to fall in love again because I had a terrible boyfriend. Or I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to bring children into the world because I came from an unhappy family. Well, yes, there are lots of unhappy families and lots of terrible boyfriends and lots of foolish evangelicals. Um, but that doesn't mean that family life's bad or love is over or that evangelicalism is bankrupt. Take a look at where it's at its best and then make your decision from there. You know, and the other thing I would say is that what maybe concerns me is when people seem to be leaving the faith completely, when, of course, the church is far broader than maybe the evangelical subculture that they are now critiquing and feeling that it represents all of Christianity, when, of course, it doesn't. As somebody whose original training is in history, and particularly church history, I'm all for people leaving a community that they find to be not helpful to them in flourishing and in serving, right? Both helping them become what they should be and helping them serve the way they should serve. So if you find 
the Baptist tradition to be to A, B, or C, well, then find a tradition that can give you D, E, and F. You know, go to the Anglican Church down the street, or check out the Presbyterians, or 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 see what the Roman Catholics are doing. If you, if you if you feel that that's the kind of thing that that will be best for you to do, what to draw closer to God and to participate more with God in God's work in the world. Uh, but let me just give you a friendly warning: um, every church is narrow. Because every church is something in particular. And everything that is something in particular isn't everything. So the Roman Catholic Church, as vast as it is, is still pretty Catholic in ways that you may find helpful and in ways that I don't find particularly attractive, which is why I'm not a Catholic. Every Pentecostal church is going to be Pentecostal. And if you like that, great, but you may not because it can't do everything. No group of human beings can properly image and act like all human beings. Every tradition, every denomination is going to be narrow in some ways. The key is to find the place where you can flourish to love God better and to love the world in God's name better. If that works for you in one or another evangelical church, great. If you need to go somewhere else, that's great too. But it would be pretty sad to think, I'm going to leave my Mennonite background and know I've just discovered the Methodists, they seem to have it all right. No, they just do some things differently and perhaps in your view better than Mennonitism. But there are Methodists who are going in exactly the opposite direction for exactly the same reasons. Yeah, I think my last question is about the authority of the Bible. That's one of the places where you come up with at the very, in your very last chapter, and you talk about a fork in the road that evangelicals are faced with, that some of the social issues that we're dealing with right now, when people, when Christians talk about them in biblical terms, if they can't find a comfortable way to harmonize their thinking with what the Bible teaches, they tend to start questioning sort of the authority of the Bible. And we talked earlier about biblicism being a key element of what it means to be an evangelical. So you kind of seem to leave that question open at the end of your book. Is that how you're feeling, that evangelicals could be divided or could face some challenges in that aspect of, of the core, what, what you call vibrant central Christianity or whatever? I think there are two kinds of mistakes that are afflicting a lot of evangelical individuals and institutions today in Canada and beyond. One is to, in a sense, double down on biblical authority and say the Bible clearly says A. And if you don't agree with us that the Bible says A, when the Bible transparently does say A, then I guess you don't really not only agree with us about A, you must not really agree that the Bible is the word of God, which means that you're not a Christian, which means, right? So there's this, this set of dominoes that very quickly fall. So if, if for us, again, if the Bible clearly says A, you don't agree with us on A, then you must not agree with the authority of Scripture and so on. Now, sometimes that's true. Sometimes I think that case can be made. It just has to be made carefully in any particular situation. Other people are arguing instead, look at the diversity among even evangelicals on issue X. Well, since a number of evangelicals are arrayed across a spectrum on X, surely then the right thing to do is to embrace all those as legitimate views and simply all get along together about X. Well, that's one way to put it, but another way is to say, look, uh, in any given math classroom, there are an array of answers to question number 12. But actually, there's only one right answer to question number 12, and the teacher's now going to tell you that even though there happen to be an array of answers in the classroom, only one of them is actually the correct answer. So 
I think that we've got to be careful how we argue in these controversial issues. And part of the challenge of evangelical leadership, I think, is to try to find a way to distinguish between issues upon which we have to agree if we're going to continue to walk and work together as evangelicals, and what are the issues on which we don't have to agree and we can still maintain a fruitful gospel fellowship. Wesley was arguing about those things in his own day. We have to argue with them in ours. And they're not going to be resolved by one or the other of what I see to be these simplistic but very attractive alternatives of either hammering people with biblical authority or simply appealing to diversity as if it is always an intrinsic good. No, diversity is not a good thing if you are giving scope for significant and harmful error. But diversity can be a good thing if we, in fact, can allow each other liberty and grace to be different, to understand the gospel differently, so long as it's really the gospel. And I think we're having a terrible time right now articulating how to keep those principles together. And it's costing us congregations, it's costing us universities, it's costing us divisions even in our families. To me, that's the most significant challenge, frankly, facing Canadian evangelicals now. Thank you for addressing that, John. John, what do you love the most about the evangelical church? Evangelicals have the best jokes. <laughs> really? <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> yes, we do. The evangelicalism uh, published, has published the Wittenberg Door for several decades. It's easily the funniest Christian magazine ever ever published. In fact, it's one of the very few ever published that is consistently funny. Uh, evangelicals have a terrific subculture of making fun of each other as well as making fun of other people. And yeah, we can be bitter and nasty, but frankly, the the, the funniest people I know are evangelicals who who love Jesus and who take the gospel really seriously, but they don't take themselves or anybody else all that seriously, and we can have a lot of fun, as I say, making fun of ourselves and other people as well. Um, and that kind of, of, of lightness of spirit that comes from being, I think, deeply centered in a simple but powerful expression of the gospel and a lively relationship with God through Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it lets you keep a sense of humor about things. It lets you say, even if it's a dark sense of humor, you say, yeah, you know what? Though there is light at the end of the tunnel, there is hope at the end of the journey, there is lots of good stuff to be had along the way, so let's take it seriously, but not too seriously. And, and that's something that I think evangelicals do pretty well. We take some things very seriously, and because we focus on those few things, we can let a lot of other stuff go. At, at our best, we are a diverse and uh, tatterdemalion bunch that really can enjoy what the Presbyterians do over there and what the Baptists do over here and what the Christian Missionary Alliance do over there and what the Mennonites do there. At our best, we appreciate all that diversity and we can joke and kid each other about that. I, I think that's why I still am reasonably sane and still reasonably evangelical. <laughs> John Stackhouse, thank you very, very much. Good to talk to you, Kurt. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.